Well, today we're looking at Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 7, which speaks directly to the human condition as well as our salvation and how we are saved by grace. Uh, The picture that this passage paints is initially a dark and sober one, but the gray dawn of its early verses is soon met with color, magic, and joy. It is a picture that is beautifully rendered in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I'm wondering who here has read that story. You don't have to be shy. You can raise your hand. It's a beautiful tale. Uh, Let me recall for you. um, An evil witch, an evil white witch, has invaded the land of Narnia. And notoriously, the white witch, she turns creatures of Narnia into stone statues. And she collects these creatures in her castle-like trophies. But Aslan, the good lion and the rightful king of that land, has returned to his country to defeat the white witch and to bring peace to Narnia once again. Towards the end of the story, Aslan storms the witch's castle. And do you remember what happens next? He finds a hundreds, if not thousands, of stone creatures there. And he bounds up to a stone lion and he breathes on him. And then he bounds up to a stone dwarf And he breathes on her. He breathes on a stone rabbit. And then he breathes on two centaurs. And on and on like this. Until he has breathed on every stone creature in that castle. I want to read to you what happens next. Listen. For a second after Aslan had breathed upon him. The stone lion looked just the same. Then a tiny streak of gold began to run along his white marble back. Then it spread. Then the color seemed to lick all over him as the flame licks all over a bit of paper. Then, while his hindquarters were still obviously stone, the lion shook his mane and all the heavy stone folds rippled into living hair. Then he opened a great red mouth, warm and living, and gave a large, a large yawn. And now his hind legs had come to life. He lifted one of them and scratched himself. Then, having caught sight of Aslan, he went bounding after him and frisked around him, whimpering with delight and jumping up to lick his face. Of course, the children's eyes turned to follow the lion, but the sight they saw was so wonderful that they soon forgot about him. Everywhere, the statues were coming to life. The courtyard looked no longer like a museum. It looked more like a zoo. Creatures were running after Aslan and dancing around him till he was almost hidden in the crowd. Instead of all that deadly white, the courtyard was now a blaze of colors. And instead of the deadly silence, the whole place rang with the sound of happy roarings, brains, yelpings, barkings, squealings, cooings, neighings, stampings, shouts, hurrahs, songs, and laughter. That, the Bible says, is what your salvation is like. You were dead in your sins and in your trespasses. You were incapable of saving yourself. Spiritually speaking, you were cold, lifeless statues and the chilly halls of the witch's castle. But just as Aslan brought dead things back to life, so has God made you alive by the power of His Son and by the power of His Holy Spirit. You were dead in your sins and trespasses, but God has made you alive. Okay, that is the thrust of today's sermon. There's only two points, really. You were dead in your sins and trespasses, 
but God has made you alive. Have you ever asked the question, who am I? Or have you ever wondered, what was I created for? The Bible tells you, God made you in love and He made you for love. But you don't do this, and I don't do this. Okay? You and I do not love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. We do not love our neighbor as ourselves. We live, okay, but not as God intended. You and I are sinners. We have followed the course or the ways of this world. If you look at verse 2-2 with me. We have followed the course or the ways of this world. What does that mean? Well, it means that you follow the ways of this world and not God's ways. God created us in love for love. He created us to love Him, to love one another, and to love this world that He entrusted to our care. He created us to be other-oriented, to put the needs of others before our own. But sin has turned God's good world upside down. Instead of being other-oriented people, we are self-centered people. God created us to love and to serve others, but now our chief concern is, what's best for me? You know? What's in it for me? How does this benefit me? We are self-absorbed and we are self-interested. We praise ourselves and we promote ourselves. Our chief concerns are self-preservation, self-actualization, self-gratification, protecting ourselves, pruning ourselves, right? And pleasing ourselves. These are the ways of the world and we walk in them. But that's not all. Okay, not only have we followed the ways of this world, okay, not only are we selfish and self-absorbed and self-interested and self-centered people, worse, Paul says... You have followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of the work and sons of disobedience. That is to say, you have believed the lies of the devil and you've come under his spell. Okay, in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the devil is referred to as the ruler of demons and the prince of this world. In the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to the devil as a murderer from the beginning. The devil, he says, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and he is the father of all lies. What Paul is saying here in this verse is that you and I have believed the lies of the devil and we have come under his spell. The devil is the one who spoke through the serpent in the garden. He is the one who compelled Adam and Eve to doubt God's goodness, and to disobey His commands. The lie that the devil told in the garden was not that God doesn't exist, but that God is not good. The lies of the devil sound something like this. God's not good. He doesn't love you. He hates you. He doesn't want what's best for you. You can't trust Him. Okay, if you obey God, you will never be happy. If you obey God, you will never thrive. You will never flourish. God wants to keep you down. God wants to oppress you. 
So what you need to do is you need to run far, far away from him. Run far, far away from home. And then, only then, will you be truly happy. Okay, these are the lies of the devil, the father of lies. And they are all lies that we have believed at one point or another or continue to believe now. Some in this room believe them still. When we believe these lies, we act upon them. We doubt God's goodness, and therefore we disobey His commands. We kick Him off His throne, and we put ourselves in His place. We become a law unto ourselves. We do what's right in our own eyes. And this is what Paul is getting at in verses 2 and 3. It says, Following the prince of the power of the air, we have all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Okay, we've committed crimes of the mind. We say there is no God, or he's not good, or he has no power over me. And once we've decided that, once we've decided that God is, is dead, or God is not good, or God is simply irrelevant, we make ourselves Lord over our own lives. We write the rules. We do what's right in our own eyes. If it feels good, we do it. If it tastes good, we eat it. If we want it, we take it. If we cannot have it, we destroy it. If someone tells us no, we silence them. And we reject them. And this is what we do. Right? We write the rules. We do what's right in our own eyes. And this is born tragedy in our life as well as the lives of others. Looking inside as well as looking outside, we see a sad tale that's filled with sexual immorality, idolatry, hatred, strife, jealousy, anger, feuds, war, division, envy, drunkenness, drug abuse, racism, sexism, ageism, lying, cheating, stealing, murder, and more. This is what we do. This is who we are. Okay, we are sinners. We have followed the ways of this world. We have believed the lies of the devil and we have come under his spell and we have done what is right in our own eyes. We have turned God's good world upside down. We have wounded God and his creation. And this, my friends, is why we deserve his wrath. Paul says in verse 3 that we are in our sinful nature, okay, children of wrath. It doesn't sound very good, does it? Well, what's that all about? God's wrath is his holy anger directed against evil and directed against our sin. Okay, because God is good, holy, just, and loving. God hates what mars and ruins and hurts and harms the ones that he loves. Okay, because God is good and holy and just and loving, he hates the things that hurts the ones that he loves. Parents, you probably understand this better than any of us here. Okay, if somebody hurts your child, okay, if somebody walked up to your daughter and punched her and just struck her down to the ground, would you get angry? Would you? If you didn't love your child, I, I imagine you would feel nothing. 
You'd simply sit there and shrug. But because you love your child, you do feel something. You feel wrath, actually. Your love for your child, mixed with the anger over the sin, is what wrath is. The wrath is a consequence of your love for the child and to see it hurt in this way. So it is with our Father in heaven. Okay, he feels wrath when his loved ones are abused. God feels wrath when we spurn him. He feels wrath when we make a mockery of his laws. He feels wrath when we, when we wound men, women, and children who are made in his image. And he feels wrath when we destroy his beautiful, now broken creation. Okay, he feels this way because God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son love one another. And they love you, children made in his image. And they love this world. Okay, his wrath is a consequence of his love for you. I want you to picture with me an artist who spent his entire life creating the most beautiful paintings, the most beautiful works of art. He pours his life into his work. He pours his, his life into his paintings. All of his time and energy, all of his affection and skill is put on display there in the paintings that he makes. One day he's invited to, to hang his paintings in a gallery, and he happily obliges. He takes the paintings and he, he puts them in the gallery one by one by one. And when he's done with it, he sort of steps back from it. And he looks at it and he's amazed. It's beautiful. The work is stunning. It really is fantastic. That night, after looking at his work, he turns the lights off and he walks down the stairs and he goes home. Well, later that night, Someone breaks into the gallery. He hasn't come to steal anything. He simply has come to destroy. He's got a knife in his pocket, and he goes up to every canvas, and he takes that knife out, and he cuts every canvas, slashing here, slashing there, slashing there. And then he goes away. The next morning, the artist goes back to the gallery, and he opens up the door, and what does he see? But all the works of his hands ruined cut, torn to shreds. He walks up to a painting and he lifts a little flap of canvas and he puts it up. You can tell it's still beautiful. Okay? It's still the works of his hands. Let's go of the hand and the flap comes back down and it's evident the things that he has made has been ruined. How do you think the artist would feel? How would you feel if you were in his shoes? Did you feel anger? Did you feel sadness? Heartache? Loss? A real sense of injustice? A real sense of what just happened here is wrong. It should not have happened. This is evil. This is wrong. Whoever did this needs to be punished. Whoever did this, in fact, deserves to die. Well, guess what? You and I have taken a knife to God's good creation. You and I have wielded a knife against the work of God's hands. On a weekly, if not daily basis, can we snub, we step on, we oppress, exploit, lie to, steal from, ignore, and curse the works of God's hands? 
men, women, and children who are made in his image. You have taken a knife to God's good creation, and your sins deserve to be punished. You deserve the death penalty. You do. I do. You are, the Bible says, dead in your sins and trespasses. You are a dead man walking. Okay? In your fallen sinful nature, you are a child of wrath. And this is true of every man everywhere. It's true of you. It's true of me. It's true of all mankind. Look at verse 3. Paul is saying in that verse, look, I'm right there with you. I'm just as guilty as you are. All of us have done this. What's true of Paul is true of me, okay? John Minan, who's standing here before you. I'm guilty too, okay? I'm a sinner who deserves the wrath of God. None is righteous, okay? No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Regardless of our race, our gender, our creed, right? We are sinners who deserve the wrath of God. Our crimes against God, humanity, and this world deserve the death penalty. We are dead, my friends, in our sins and trespasses. This is the portrait that the Bible paints of us. We are beautiful because we are made in the image of God, but we are badly broken. We are badly broken because instead of loving God and others, we live for ourselves. We have kicked God off of his throne and we do as we please. We have inflicted tremendous harm and pain upon God and upon one another and upon this world. In our sins, we are not God's friends, but we're his enemies. Our heart is not healthy, it is sick. Okay, spiritually speaking, we are cold statues and the halls of the white witch. Hopeless and helpless, desperately needing the breath of Aslan to bring us back to life. Okay, spiritually speaking, there has been a shipwreck, and we have drowned. And our bodies are floating on the top of the surface, and our faces are face down deep in the water. We are not treading water, waiting for some ship to come along, to throw us a lifesaver so we can somehow pull ourselves up to shore. We pull ourselves up onto the deck. No, we are dead. We are face down in the water. And what we desperately need is a Savior to come to pick us up out of the water, bring us onto deck, turn us around, and perform the spiritual equivalent of CPR, breathing new life into us. Okay, you are dead in your sins and trespasses. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love that he has for us, he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, and he made us alive together with Christ. Okay, you were dead, but God has made you alive. You were dead, but God has made you alive. This but God, in verses 2, 4, and 5, it might be the best conjunction, the best turn of phrase you'll read in the entire Bible. And these two words, but God, we have an encapsulation, almost a summary of what the entire notion or idea of grace is. You are this, but God has made you that. Okay, you were strangers and aliens to God, but now, guess what? You're citizens of heaven, and you're members of God's household. 
Okay, you were children of wrath, but now you're children of God. You had no hope, but now you have hope. You were in bondage, but God has set you free. You are far off, but God has brought you near. You are broken, but God has made you whole. You are dead, but God has made you alive. It's a complete reversal of our situation. But how or why? This happened because God was gracious to you. This happened because God was gracious to me, to us. It happened because God gave us his son. It happened because God gave us his spirit. You were dead, but God has made you alive. And he did this through his son, and he did this through his spirit. Okay, there's no more condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus, because God paid the penalty for, of your sins at the cross. He poured out his wrath upon your sins at the cross, and he took your, the, the punishment in your place. God has given you Jesus. He has made you alive. But God has also given you his spirit. And it's by the power of his spirit that your, the eyes of your heart, heart have been enlightened. It is why you recognize Jesus for who he is, the son of God who, come, who had come to earth on a rescue mission to seek and save the lost, Translation, to seek and save you. Sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless, lost and needing salvation. It's because of the Holy Spirit that you put your faith and trust in Christ. God has sealed you with Him. If you are a Christian, God has sealed you with His Holy Spirit. You need not fear anymore. You're not dead, but you are alive. And you will be forever. You're saved. And you're saved by grace. You're saved by grace. Okay, you didn't deserve this. And you didn't earn it. You did not deserve to be saved. Okay, God did not have to do this for you. He did not have to save us from our sins. He did not have to die in our place. Okay, he did not have to give us his spirit He did not have to bring us back to life. He didn't have to. It would have been well within his rights to blast us for our sins. To wipe us clean off the map. To junk this world. He didn't. God didn't do that. And the reason he didn't do that is because of his great love for you and for me. His great love for this world. His great mercy. It's hard to comprehend. Why does God love us like this? I don't know. I really don't know. But I know that it's true. I don't know why God loves us like this, but I know that it's true. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. That's you and me. Why does God love us like this? You think it's crazy. You think you don't deserve it, and you're right. It is crazy. You don't deserve it. But friends, it's true. Okay, God loves you. God loves you so very much. And remarkably, He loves me too. Okay, God saved us by grace. We didn't deserve it. But not only did we not deserve it, we can't take credit for it either. Okay, God chose you before you chose Him. God loved you before you loved him. 
which is simply another way of saying, you did not earn your salvation. Okay, you did not earn it. In verse 8, Paul is going to say, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, you did not earn your salvation. You did not work for it. You did not earn it. You cannot take credit for it. It's entirely God's doing, which is why you have nothing to boast in but Jesus. Well, you might say, surely there's something I do. You know, I chose to be a Christian, didn't I? But listen to what Jesus has to say to that. Jesus says, I loved you before you loved me. I chose you before you chose me. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The reason you come to me, Jesus says, is because, not because you're clever, but because you're called, because I chose you. Think about that for a moment. Jesus is saying, even your faith is a gift of, from God from me to you. Even your faith is a gift. You have been made alive again, not because you are smart, not because you are good, not because you are clever, but because God is gracious. He saw you harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He saw you weak and wounded, sick and sore. He saw you dead in your sins and trespasses. He saw you wielding that knife against his creation, and he saw the back of your head as you turned around and you walked out that door with a slam, walking away from him. Okay, that is what God saw. And you know what he did? He went on a rescue mission to seek and save you. To seek and save the lost. To find you. To heal you. To bring you back to life. To bring you back home. You have been saved by grace. You did not deserve this. And you did not earn or accomplish this. The only thing we bring to Jesus' table is a pocket full of nails. And Jesus says, here's what you need to do with that. You need to put it here, and you need to put it here, and you need to put it in my feet, because I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to die for you. And by my death, you are going to be made alive again. Can we come to Jesus' table with a pocket full of nails, with our sins? Okay? But apart from that, we come empty-handed. And that's the way it's supposed to be. When you finally see that you come to this table empty-handed, you finally are able to receive everything that God has to offer you and freely gives to you because of Jesus and His Spirit and His great love and His tender mercy for you. And it flows to you. You are dead, but God has made you alive. You are saved by grace. Well, how might these truths begin to change us from the inside out? Okay, How might these truths affect the way that we see ourselves, our neighbors, our city, and our world? Well, in closing, here are a few sort of practical observations or applications. If you fully understand this doctrine that you are saved by grace, that you are dead in your sins and trespasses, but God has made you alive, that you have been saved by grace, if you fully comprehend this, you will be humble, not proud. You will be humble, not proud. 
Christians ought to be the humblest people in the world. We're not to our shame, but we ought to be. Okay? Because the doorway into the Christian life, the Christian life begins with the admission, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner whose, whose sins are so bad that God himself had to take on flesh and die for me. I'm that messed up. If you really get to know me, you will see a sinful person whose sins are so bad that God had to die for me. <laughs> that is a humbling admission. But friends, it is the truth. That's how God sees it. You were dead, but God made you alive and he saved you by grace. Friends, we ought to be a humble people, not proud. You can't look down your nose at anybody. Not anybody. Yeah, your neighbors are sinners. <laughs> okay. But you are too. And you need Jesus just as much as they do. You need just as much as your non-Christian neighbors do. If salvation were by works, okay, if we deserved it or we earned it, well, then we would have something to boast in, but it's not. Okay, it's by grace. You did nothing, and God did everything. You come to his table empty-handed. Not only will salvation by grace humble you, it's going to make you compassionate, not critical. Okay? This doctrine makes us humble, not proud, but it also makes us compassionate and not critical. Why? Well, you were lost, but now you've been found. Okay? You were a lost sheep, but Jesus went to save you. And the lost around you, right? The lost people around you, they're no different than you were. They're no different. The only difference is that when Jesus went on a mission to find lost sheep, he picked you up first and brought you home. That's the only difference. Okay? When you begin to see yourself like that as a lost sheep who's been found and the people around you as lost sheep who still need to be found, it'll make you compassionate and not critical. You'll begin to see them that they were just like you. That there's really no difference from you. The only difference is grace. And you will become patient with them and you will begin praying for them that the same grace that was shown to you will be shown to them as well. That the same gifts that you received be gifts that would be shared and that they would receive too. Another application. You'll be confident, not crushed. Why? When your sins get shown to you, it doesn't startle you. You're like, you're a sinner. You've sinned. And you can say, I know. I know. And people say, well, aren't, are you a Christian? You could say, yeah, I am. I'm a sinner who's been saved by grace. Isn't it amazing? I'm a Christian. Me of all people. Me of all people. I know. It's crazy. It's true. I know. You can, when people show, that you, show you your sin, it doesn't have to crush you. You can admit it. I'm a sinner. And yeah, I'm a Christian too. Jesus came to save people like me. You can be confident, not crushed. Here's the last thing. You'll be changed, not complacent. Okay? You'll be changed, not complacent. When, you're getting, when your sins get shown to you, not only will you not be crushed by criticism, 
But you won't want to do your sins anymore. You see your sins for what they are, as ugly, as sinful, as death, as unloving. You've been set free. You've been made alive. You don't want to go back to that anymore. You're changed. You're not complacent. In the face of your sin, you're not crushed, but you're not complacent anymore. You're confident because Christ died to save you. You're changed because you've been made alive. You've been set free. You are dead in your sins and trespasses, my friends. But God has made you alive. He has given you His Son. He's given you His Spirit. By grace you have been saved. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, so that no man may boast. The fruit of your faith will be humility, not pride. It will be compassion, not criticism. You will be confident and not crushed. And you will be changed and not complacent. May God take these, this truth and plant it deep within our hearts so that we would be people like that. And would he give faith to those who have none? And for those who have some, would he strengthen it? Let's pray.